1: your peace and great shepherd king so why don't you learn to trust in me when i have come and saved your soul it breaks my heart to see you in despair when i can heal and make you whole so love the and i will heal you love the lord your god with all your heart and soul and mind and strength your God who is you rest when you are weary I am the Lord your God God, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God,
0: I am the Lord your God. Okay, I'm going to sing it one more.
1: devil in sin I know your power to rescue from the trouble storms I will face. I know your power delivers and I must live by your grace. I'm gonna run to you and live this life that's new. Everything you have done in saving this wicked sinner, boasting the victory you won.
0: i right back get the blood pumping there All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, could you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17? And uh, we're going to uh, continue our study of the Doctrine of the Pastor-Teacher. We're almost done with it. Uh, today, we'll finish off the uh, that part of the Doctrine in which we're discussing uh, divine um, church discipline in the pastor. And then t- on Saturday morning will be our 22nd and final hour in this Doctrine of the Pastor-Teacher. And we'll be noting answering the question, can women be pastors? And well, uh, of course, uh, it'll only be one hour on that. I could probably, I, as for those who did First Timothy with me, that whole section of First Timothy 2, 11 through 15, I did in great detail. It's uh, it's on our website at org and the written articles with regards to the exegesis and exposition of those verses. And that whole book is there in exhaustive detail in PDF format. It's also found on our Academia EDU website as well. So if you're really looking to dig into that, because I. I uh, will not go into exhaustive detail like I did when I was in the Book of First Timothy with regards to this issue of women pastors. So that's uh, uh, of course, so, so tackling an, a, a controversial subject like that in church discipline. Right now, what we're doing in this controversial subject with pastors in church discipline, because some pastors are not held, uh, don't want to be held accountable, and some churches don't hold their pastors accountable, and all kinds of problems are happening in the church because of it. So. Uh, We're going to uh, look at, as you can see, uh, if you look at my, uh, on the board, we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21 today, which teaches us that unrepentant pastors must be disciplined without prejudging or prejudice. And this is very, very important what Paul uh, says here uh, to Timothy, who was his delegate to the Ephesian Christian community when he wrote this epistle. So, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves because uh, we take this moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we need to confess any sins to the Father because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do it First Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us another day to study your word. We pray the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here this morning. I pray that you would help those in the audience, and we thank you for those in the audience that are your children. I help them to learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught by the power of the Spirit. Please break down any barriers sin and Satan might put up that hinder that from happening, and also empower me to bring forth your full counsel today by the means of the power of the Holy Spirit with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so that your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. And they can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for the technology. Thank you for it, the people taking advantage of it. I pray that the uh there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. So, Father, we pray for this service on our great God and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You should be at first Peter chapter uh, first Timothy, excuse me. First Timothy chapter five, verse seventeen. And uh, as I said before, we're going to continue our study of the doctrine of pastor teacher. Uh, we're in the we'll be we're in the 21st hour today, and then we have one more hour. As I said before, the opening prayer when we and we'll finish it all off by uh, answering the question: Can women be pastors? And so. Uh, Quickly, by way of review, I've been using this outline throughout this series on the pastor teacher. In the first hour, we noted the introduction, which touched upon everything we'd cover in this series. Then we noted in the second hour, the different terms for the pastor teacher. And then we noted that the uh, pastor teacher is a spiritual gift. And as we saw, we were in Ephesians 4.11, and we found out that uh, that in that passage the Granville Sharp rule is not in effect because it's not in effect with plural nouns as as was the case there as Ephesians four eleven there's plural nouns there, with point main uh, pastors and Didaskalos Didaskalos teachers, and so we saw however though the article is not before uh, Didaskalos teaching that's significant, uh, and it, uh, so you have uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastors all have a definite article in the Greek. Teachers doesn't, and that's that's significant. So that means that we pointed out that teachers is a subset of pastors. And the other uh, gift that's related to uh, pastors is the gift of uh, leadership. We saw that in Romans twelve eight in our study of spiritual gifts. In that book we studied, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight. 28, uh, it's called The Gift of Leadership. Um, some translations, like the New American Standards, say administrations. So the gift of leadership and the gift of teaching Fall into the subset or the category of pastors, and so and they also fall into the category of elders as well. So they constitute the elders of the church; those who have the gift of leadership. And the gift of teaching Paul doesn't mention the gift of leadership in Ephesians 4 because he's talking about the communication gifts which uh, their function builds up and edify the body of Christ and so uh, then we noted the qualifications we went to first Timothy 3 1 through 7 Titus 1 6 to 9 all both of those passages we saw in great detail when we studied those books and we noted the qualification for the man with the gift of pass the teacher that he must manifest these qualifications over an indefinite period of time in order for him to assume the office of overseer he shouldn't be ordained until he has a level of maturity, and that's what those uh, qualifications are—they're marks of maturity. Then we know the three, noted the threefold purpose of the spiritual gift of pastor the teacher in Ephesians 4:12, and then we went on to study the fourfold responsibilities of the pastor-teacher, which are study, teaching, praying for your congregation, and also exemplifying godliness and then we noted uh, the final uh, financial support of the past a very uh, controversial subject in our day and age but anytime you talk about money uh people get all uh worked up and uh, getting all nervous and everything and some churches uh beat people up for money all the time and some churches uh there are some churches the real ones that don't and uh so uh, we see that uh, it's. However, Jesus taught a lot about money. In fact, I think he taught that was pretty much. He taught more about, or he talked about money in, in some way, some 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 way form of fashion, uh, than more than any other subject. By the way, interestingly enough. And now, right now, we're in. The, uh, we're finishing off uh, the the section of this doctrine which talks about church discipline and the past, the teacher, and then, as I said before, we'll be finishing this off this series on Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time by noting. Uh, answering the question, can women be pastors? And we'll be in that passage, First uh, Timothy 2:11 through 15, which is a very controversial in our day and age here in America because of uh, feminism has infected the church, and uh, people believe that women can be pastors, and uh, they're trying to apply the standards of Satan's cosmic system in the 21st century in America to the the standards of God, and God rejects those standards. So. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, why pastors uh, why women can't be pastors in that passage. So I already told you see I already answered the question for you right here, but we're, I'm going to explain it myself and what, let you see what the Bible says for itself rather than just what my opinion is. It's not my opinion is based upon what I saw in the scriptures. So and that's actually the uh that's always been actually if you think about it um that throughout the church's history for until the advent of the, like before like around the 20th, sometime in the 20th century, particularly in the 60s, then you had this talk about women pastors. And I find that's interesting. Before that, nowhere in the Roman Empire, in the ancient world, in the first, second, third centuries, was any discussion of women being pastors that was not considered orthodox. And so, uh, but until, you know, the recent times, because with the advent of feminism in the West, when I say West America and Western Europe, you've had women becoming pastors, and uh, so uh, we're gonna see that the Bible is not, uh, has different standards than the world's standards. And so, and there's, God has reasons, very, very important reasons why he, he does not allow a woman to be uh, a pastor uh, uh, over a church. In fact, he doesn't give the gift to, to women. And I know that some women will say, oh, I disagree, well that's, you can disagree with me all, all you want, but he's, he the scriptures are pretty clear that he doesn't give gifts, uh, the, the gift of teaching to um, to men, uh, to women. Uh, we saw there's a t- Carlo Didascolos in Titus 2-3 uh, where women are content to teach women, but women are not allowed, as we'll see on Saturday, they're not allowed to teach in the public assembly with men present. And Paul gives two reasons that make it clear that he's not talking about a cultural situation like many like to think. He's talking about something that's true throughout the church age. So we'll be talking about that on Saturday. I'll be a a blockbuster uh, way to end this series on the pastor the teachers. So look at First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. I'll be reading from, let's read from the ESV today. Ephesians two 17. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter as we've been doing the last several classes. Let the elders, uh, Paul writes, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Then he says, and he gives the reasons in verse uh, eighteen. For the scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." Deuteronomy twenty-five four. He's talking about there. And then uh, Luke ten and uh, Matthew ten, he quotes from with Jesus. And the labor deserves his wages. Jesus taught. Do not verse nineteen. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And he's talking about the second stage of church discipline. We know this from Matthew eighteen fifteen to seventeen, which gives us the uh, Jesus gives us the guidelines for church discipline and the, um, and the, uh, what we are, the, what we need to be, uh, following. So he, the second stage, you bring two or more witnesses, uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, confront the man who's, or the woman who is, uh, in this case, the man, the pastor who is, uh, unrepentant about his sin. Then we have verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all that would be the final stage of church discipline, uh, given to us in Matthew 18, 17, as we saw. And the reason for this is so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Then it says in verse 21, a passage today, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on uh, on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Uh, Keep yourself pure. Then he has a parenthetical note for Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some people, and he's talking about the elders uh, who are living in sin, are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And so we'll be looking at verse 21, which is we we just read in the, the uh ESV, look at the Net Bible, they translate verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. The Net Bible, uh, before God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I solemnly charge you to carry out these commands without prejudice or favoritism of any kind. And my translation of this very same verse goes as follows, I myself solemnly charge in the presence of God the Father, as well as Christ who is Jesus, and in addition, the elect angels, that you carry out these things without prejudging, continuing to make it your habit of doing absolutely nothing on the basis of partiality. So, we see here in this verse, in verse 21, Paul's employing the figure of a which simply means he's not using a connective word between verse 21 and verse 20. When the writer does that, he does it for a reason. Here, it's for emphasis. So, therefore, when Paul uses this figure of a syndeton, not using a connective word between verses 20 and 21, he's doing so because he's emphasizing, he wants to emphasize the importance of the warning for the Christian community in Ephesus and for Timothy to administrate the household of God in Ephesus. So when it says in my translation, I solemnly charge in the presence of God the Father, as well as Christ, who is Jesus, and in addition the elect angels, that indicates that Paul is solemnly charging Timothy to put into practice the commands that we saw in verses 19 and 20 with the implication that he's imposing this upon Timothy as his duty and responsibility as his delegate to the Ephesian Christian community. It expresses Paul's apostolic authority in a degree of formality because he mentions the Father, Son, and the elect angels as his witnesses emphasizing with Timothy that it's absolutely imperative that he is faithful and putting into practice the commands that we saw in verses 19 and 20, which talk about discipline of the pastor teacher when it's warranted. And so it expresses also, it emphasizes with Timothy, verse 21, that he will be held accountable in the matter. And it indicates that Timothy will have to give an account of his service in Ephesus, and in particular, with regards to these two commands in verses 19 and 20. And also, it emphasizes that these commands in verses 19 and 20 come ultimately from the Father and the Son, and that the elect angels are observing his actions to testify to his faithfulness or unfaithfulness, which will be determined by his observance of these commands or failure to do so. So, this statement in verse 21 emphasizes the gravity of the situation. It also emphasizes How important that Timothy carry out these commands with impartiality in that the testimony of the church before the unsaved is at stake and thus the cause of Christ. Furthermore, the spiritual growth of the church is at stake because the pastor teachers, i.e. the elders or overseers, are those who communicate doctrine to the church. And if these men are not functioning in their great spiritual gift due to an unrepentant lifestyle, then the church's growth will suffer. So this statement implies that Timothy represents the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is extremely important. So these, this figure of a synaton, it's expressing the gravity of the situation. And why is it very, very important? Well, if these pastors are not held to account and not uh, and you don't practice church discipline with them, uh, the spiritual growth of the church is at stake. The testimony of the church before the world is at stake. Uh, very, very important, and also not to mention the spiritual growth of these men is at stake. And you know, we have today, and this is, I know a good reason why this is the case, most churches don't practice church discipline uh, today. A lot of churches in America do not do it. They used to, but what happened is a lot of people, a lot of churches abused church discipline. When I say abused, they really didn't abuse it. They didn't even use it correctly. They weren't even practicing church discipline they were just being, you know, you had power trips of some people and they're forcing people out who were legalistic, forcing others out that they didn't like. And that. So church discipline was abused because it wasn't used, it wasn't practiced biblically. And so the whole purpose of church discipline, we did a whole, did a whole series on this, uh, and, we've, and we actually talked about it in a number of areas, like apostasy, that doctrine, we studied that in Massachusetts. But um, we see that uh, church discipline is absolutely imp- imperative, that we practice it. And, uh, and if we don't, we're, only hurt, we're hurting the, the cause of Christ in the world because of our, the church's bad behavior, which is, becomes uh, almost indistinguishable from the non-Christians' bad behavior. So uh, And also the spiritual growth of the individuals it's at stake. Your you're you're di- whole purpose of church discipline is help the people who are involved in these sins. You know, they're, they're, they're unrepentant about their sinful lifestyle and in this case, the pastors who have an unrepentant, life, sinful lifestyle, we, if we love them and care about them, we'll confront them. And of course, the Lord maps out in detail the, uh, the, the guidelines to do it. So let's uh, hold your place. Let's go uh, quickly over to Matthew 18. Look at verse 15. Matthew 18:15. So the Lord writes, uh, the Lord, uh, Matthew uh, records uh, the Lord speaking to his his disciples and the apostles. He says, "If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you." So that's church discipline. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Meaning they're back in fellowship. If they stop what they're doing, they're they're repentant about it, and uh, then you uh, uh, you. Um, if they are repent about it, then you can there you can have fellowship, continue to have fellowship with them. So that's great. But, but you also need to do this. Look at Galatians six one. Hold your place. Well, you can just watch me go to it. So Galatians six one. You comp- compare what the Lord said Matthew eighteen fifteen with this. Galatians six one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore them that person. And I love this gently, or with gentleness. But watch yourselves. You also may be tempted. Meaning, don't get a big head about it. That you're. Uh, holding someone to account for their sinful behavior because you could be on the other end and you're to do it with gentleness you don't hammer the person i've seen people i'll tell you i've had uh, people who are um who've you know you you know when somebody wants to go to the pastor and complain about you know uh, the the teaching there i've had people who they would never talk that way to their monsters the way they talk to to to, to a pastor and i mean I, i was like i remember you know that happening in the several times in the past and it's like, uh, that's not, you know, if you've got a problem with me, how about being gentle? How would you like to be spoken to? You know, you, you treat others to, the way you're supposed to be, you treat others the way you want to be treated, right? The Lord taught, well, you know, a lot of people, when they come to trying to straighten somebody out, um, they don't do that. And what tells me is these people are living in their flesh and they have an ax to grind and they're bitter. And so, and that's what, that's what, so when you're, you're gentle, you're, Okay, that shows that you're uh, you're filled with the Spirit and you're in fellowship with God yourself. So if you are out of fellowship with God and you are uh, emotional and angry and bitter, what are you doing? You you need to confess your sin. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be going and trying to confront somebody and straighten somebody else because you need to straighten yourself up. I remember this uh, <laughs> I remember this uh, this 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 young man in college and he flunked out of college. And then you know he was he was talking to his friend who was still in college, and he's trying to give him uh, you know he's saying he was trying to give him uh, um, give him advice in college. I said you do want to give advice. You flunked out. What are you talking giving him advice for well, what's wrong with you? Talking about this, you know does talking being uh, being in a uh, self deceived and like not living in reality. You can't give out advice or straighten anybody else if you yourself are screwed up. <laughs> you know, so it's like. So, that, that, so we want to approach the person at the first stage of church discipline with gentleness, you're not hammering them over the head, and, and which tells me you're out of fellowship if you do that. So then at, look at verse 16. The Lord says, but if they list, will not listen, they don't repent, in other words. And when he says listen, he means obey. Kind of like my mother says, Billy doesn't listen to me, he says, she says to my father. That means Billy's not obeying me. Okay? You know what I'm saying? That's how the Lord's saying it here. Akuos, the verb. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. Those are witnesses. How do we know that? Look at what he says. So that in every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Paul mentions that in 1 Timothy 5, right? Doesn't he? Yes. And so, in fact, he says that where? He says it right here in uh, verse 19, 1 Timothy five nineteen. Okay. So go back to Look at Matthew 18, 16 again. But if they will not listen, take one or two others. This is the second stage of church discipline so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, they don't repent. Tell it to the church. You you go for the whole congregation. And, uh, And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. And that would mean he's talking to Jewish men in a Jewish culture. Jesus is a Jew and context. And so what he means by there is that the Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't even go in their home. Look at acts 10. Uh, Peter wouldn't go into a home of Cornelius. He had to be told in a vision by God, he could it's okay to do so now. Uh, and then, uh, we saw tax collectors where the Jewish people had nothing to do with Jewish tax collectors were collecting taxes for the Romans because they were traitors. They thought. And so, so the, and then, and actually we saw that, uh, Paul mentions this stage, and First Timothy uh, chapter five verse twenty. But those elders who are sending you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. See the whole congregation. So, uh, so then, uh, so let's go back now to First Timothy chapter five verse twenty-one. Now, so that was Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen, which gives the uh, the guidelines for church discipline. And so, the whole the purpose is not to treat somebody like an enemy or to take out your frustrations with somebody, or go on a power trip, the whole point of it is to help this person. That's why you're doing it. If you have any other alternative motive, well, I mean, you could have the, you could, obviously we do it also because the testimony of the church is at stake. So if your pastor is a, is a drunk and is getting pulled over for drunk driving, you're hurting the cause of Christ. It's getting out to the non-believers. and I, you know, So now you've, your testimony of your church is absolutely gonzo. And not to mention the integrity of the man, the pastor, and uh, and so it's uh, very important. So we we're to treat them as a brother and sister in Christ, like they are, you know. So how, and treat them the way you'd want to be treated, and very very important. So uh, Paul, remember Paul in First Corinthians five, he absolutely tore apart the Corinthian church for not disciplining a guy in the in the Christian community in Corinth who had an incestuous relationship. And he rebuked them severely for it. And then in 2 Corinthians 2, it, he reveals that they had actually, the guy had actually repented and they said, restore him, uh, welcome him back into the fellowship. Paul talks about uh, church discipline in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. As we saw in our study of 2 Thessalonians, we finished that off in Massachusetts uh, over a year ago. And we saw that uh, some people in the Th- Thessalonian church were not working for a living. And we gave our reasons why that was. They are supposed to work; otherwise, they don't eat. Paul said. And if they don't listen to what he's teaching there, then they sh- you should practice church discipline with those individuals. He's saying. And Paul gives a list of people, a uh, list of uh, uh, sins that uh, people are to be disciplined for in the Christian community in First Corinthians five. And uh, idolaters, greed. I mean, we'd have a we'd have no we, we'd have a whole bunch of church discipline going on today, especially in America, with the greed and the materialism and uh, the idolatry that's being practiced by Christians uh, in America today. And uh, so, uh, so that's, uh, so when, but we also have to have this caveat, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, uh, uh, practicing church discipline with somebody. We all, uh, when they're, it's talking about sporadic sinning, this has to be a lifestyle, sinful patterns of behavior going on with the person like al alcohol abuse, drug abuse, stuff like that. Living in with in, having a sexual relationship with somebody that's not your spouse, fornication or adultery, one things like that. That's when you have you have you know these these sinful patterns and habitual uh, this habitual activity or lifestyle is going on because we all sin, sin in many ways. So as I gave the example, my mother accidentally became drunk when she was out with her girlfriends and didn't know what she was really, how powerful what she was drinking because it tasted so good. Uh, she got drunk, so, uh, my mother's not a drunk and doesn't abuse alcohol. Uh, I mean, she has one glass of wine and she's, she falls asleep. But, uh, so well, she used to. And uh, so, you know, so it was an accident that she got drunk, you know. So we're not, so if somebody has a bad night, you know, and and uh, they, lost, they lost their job and they don't handle it correctly and they, and they had too much to drink, you know, I wouldn't be practicing church discipline unless, unless of course it becomes a habitual activity on the part of that person. Then you need to deal with them. So, me to keep that in mind, okay? Because and, uh, and and also, 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 uh, you know, uh, it a person who has a level of maturity should be practicing church discipline. You know, church leaders and everybody in the congregation can practice it, but I wouldn't practice it if you're a baby believer. You need to learn the Word of God and grow up spiritually. Uh, you don't want to be a spiritual child, tri- child trying to discipline a spiritual adult, you're going to look foolish and you're probably not going to be practicing it correctly anyways. <laughs> and so uh, it's very important we keep these these things in mind that I'm bringing out in this study. So let's go back to my notes. we will go back to First Timothy 5.21. Paul says in the NIV, First Timothy 5.21, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. My translation again of this verse, I myself solemnly charge in the presence of God the Father, as well as the as Christ who is Jesus, and in addition, the elect angels, that you carry out these things without prejudging, continuing to make it your habit of doing so absolutely nothing, doing absolutely nothing on the basis of partiality. So when he says again, to reiterate what I mentioned a few moments ago, when Paul says I solemnly charge you, and the presence of God the Father, as well as Christ, who is Jesus, and in addition, the elect angels. This indicates that Paul is solemnly charging Timothy to put into practice these commands that he, see, that, he, that he gives him in verses 19 and 20, with the implication that he's imposing this upon Timothy as his duty and responsibility as his delegate to the Ephesian Christian community. It also expresses Paul's apostolic authority and degree of formality because he mentions the Father, the Son, and the elect angels as his witnesses, emphasizing with Timothy that it's absolutely imperative that he is faithful in putting into practice these commands. And verses uh, 19 and 20, it also emphasizes with Timothy that Timothy's going to be held accountable in the matter. And so that's very important to pastors understand. Uh, We're held accountable to teach this stuff. And are you teaching that if you're a pastor? And if you haven't taught this stuff, what are you doing? First Timothy teaches you how the church is supposed to be run. Of the relationships between the pastor, and the congregation, the deacons, older uh, Christian women with younger Christian women and older Christian men with younger Christian men and young Christian men with older women and younger women, and the whole thing. Uh, really, you know, how widows are to be treated, all types of stuff. And so, very important. We need to be practicing church discipline with elders and pastors and, and people in the congregation. Like Timothy talked about with um and Paul talked to Timothy about Alexander and Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So you're going to be held account, in other words. Timothy was going to be held to account. This is why he says what he says here in 1 Timothy 5, 21, Paul. And he's saying that, Timothy, you're going to be held to account. God the Father and the elect in the Son and the elect angels are witnesses. And they're going to be witnessing whether you're going to carry out what I told you to do or not. So pastors, those who have the gift of teaching, we need to be. we're going to be held accountable for our teaching, do we teach the full counsel of God? Are we teaching these various books of the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament? Are we doing the foundational, the, 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 the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, justification, sanctification, salvation? Uh, are we talking, uh, teaching these things? Are we, ta- are we teaching the book of Romans? Are we teaching Genesis? Are we teaching Exodus? Are we te- what are we doing? Are we, doing, are we teaching the books of the Bible? Are we doing these uh, social programs and talking about uh, politics or uh, you know doing uh, the dog and pony show? or are, uh, are we teaching it all? I mean don't tell me you're feeding the congregation with a 10 minute message you're not and you know this stuff is going on in America and, and you're going to be held to account at the Bama seat. the Lord's going to hold you to account and uh, if you're a people pleaser, you'll get into the dog and pony show. You'll be uh, you'll be involved in teaching a 10-minute message rather than an hour-long message, and studying and uh, diligently to present the word of God to your people. Uh, you'll be held to account, and uh, everybody's going to be held to account. I will be everybody, and not only for our teaching, what we teach, the content of our teaching, but also the content of our character. You know, we, you know, God knows if we're having double lives, and you know, there are pastors out there who who have lived double lives. You know, they have you know, mistresses and adulterous affairs and carrying on and never breaking it, these things off and going on and on and drunkenness and, getting, and, uh, and uh, drug abuse. It's crazy what, what's going on. And, 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 you know, it's just terrible. And it's a terrible testimony. And no wonder the church has lost its influence in many parts of this country. And, uh, and then it gives also the Christians who are in the churches and the pastors that are being faithful, it gives them a bad name. You know, before the unbelievers, so we need to. Uh, there's a, Paul's being very formal, and he's basically telling Timothy, uh, you're going to be held to account, and if you as to whether you're going to carry out the commands in verses 19 and 20, which talk about church discipline with regards to the uh, the pastor and apostasy. Also, this expression where he says, "I solemnly charge in the presence of God the Father, as well as Christ, who is Jesus, and in addition, the elect angels." It indicates as we pointed out that Timothy will have to give an account of his service in Ephesus and in particular with regards to these two commands in verses 19 and 20. It also again emphasizes that these commands come ultimately from the father and the son and that the elect angels are again observing his actions to testify to his faithfulness or unfaithfulness which will be determined by his observance of these commands or failure to do so. It also emphasizes the gravity of the situation. It also emphasizes how important that Timothy carry out these commands with impartiality, and that the testimony of the church before the unsaved is at stake, and thus the cause of Christ. Also, we pointed out the spiritual growth of the church is at stake because the pastor teaches. Are those who communicate the doctrine to the uh, Bible doctrine to the church, and if these men are not functioning in their spiritual gift, due, an, due to an unrepentant lifestyle, then the church's growth will suffer. Also, this statement in verse 21 implies that Timothy represents the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in all pastors. We need to keep that in mind. Now, when it says that you carry out these things in in 1 Timothy 5, 21, uh, the NIV says, uh, that you uh, keep these instructions. That's uh, good as well, but it's, uh, they're being more um, interpretive there, and they're, and they're correct in their ter- interpretation. The, e- the NIV, the ESV says, uh, keep these rules. They're funny. They're being inter- uh, very uh, dynamic equivalents there, though they say they're formal equivalents, but they're really both, and this is an example of it. Uh, the word for rules there is hutas, and it just simply means these things, but they translate these rules correctly. They were actually... Correct to do that, and the NET Bible says um, these commands. So they're being interpretive as well. So these commands, these um, these what did the ESV say? They had these rules. The NIV says these um, instructions. These commands by the NET Bible. I translated these things in my translation. It says, uh, "What do I have? Uh, these things." That's what I have. Okay. Now these things is. Uh, by myself and the net bible go you know they have the these other translations these commands these instructions these rules they're translating the word "hutas," which is literally means these things it's an immediate demonstrative pronoun the esv the net bible and the niv do the wreck thing also and, and, and basically interpreting for you what this word means it literally means these things but you can translate it as the way they did, because in context, that's what these things is referring to. It's referring to Paul's commands to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, which again, the Net Bible translates to not accept an accusation against an elder unless it can, can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those guilty of sin, those pastors who are unrepentant about this sin is what he means, must be rebuked before all as a warning to the rest. So the fact that these things is referring to the commands in verses 19 and 20 is indicated by the fact that each time Paul uses this word, hutas, and the accusative plural form in First Timothy, which is in 1 Timothy 1.18, 3.14, 4.6, 11.15, and 5.7, it always sums up the immediate preceding paragraph, as it does here. This is also indicated that these things is referring to the commands in verses 19 and 20 is indicated by the manner in which Timothy is to carry out these commands, which is to be without prejudging or partiality. So he's talking about in verses 19 and 20, practicing church discipline with regards to apostate pastors, like Alexander and Hymenaeus. So that, that that's why uh, when he says without prejudging and partiality, that indicates he's talking about the discipline of pastors and apostasy. So therefore, because these commands and verses 19 and 20, deal with accusations against elders and administering church discipline to those who are unrepentant apostate pastors, and that Timothy is to carry out these commands without prejudging and impartiality, indicates that hutos, these things, or these commands, or these rules or instructions, uh, is uh, refer, they are uh, that phrase is referring, this word hutos is referring to verses 19 and 20. And when Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 21, he's to uh, carry out these commands without prejudging. That speaks of Timothy prejudging innocence or guilt of an elder before considering the evidence. It indicates that Timothy must listen objectively to witnesses to determine whether or not the accusation against the elders are true or not. So just because he's a pastor and you might be friends with him as a pastor, you're not to show favoritism or partiality, partiality to him. In other words, Listen to the evidence and witnesses. That's going to determine his guilt. Not whether you like the guy or you don't like a guy. You might want to condemn the guy because you don't like the guy. and uh, But you have to consider the evidence. You can't condemn the guy as guilty until you cons- uh, cons- uh, consider the evidence and the witnesses. And that's what he's talking about here. No partiality. He's to be treated just like everybody else. And by the way, there's a, a flip side to all this. You know, There's no two sets of rules when it comes to disciplining pastors. The Lord makes that clear. And Matthew 18 15 through 17, and Paul does as well. Uh, you know, yes, the pastor shouldn't be treated any better than or any worse than anybody else, but also when we somebody repents, you know, like Paul and with the, the Corinthian church in First Corinthians 5 and First Second Corinthians chapter 2, the guy who was having an incestuous relationship, uh, repented after being confronted with church discipline by the Corinthian church. He repented. Paul says, Restore that person. Now, when a pastor it repents of his indiscretion. We we should restore him to his duties as the pastor. And a lot of churches are not doing that. And you're hurting the testimony of the church. You're not practicing the love of God. And your part being uh, uh, being uh, um, not impartial. And uh, you know you, so. Well, you say there's a lot of the trust has been broken. Yes, uh, the trust is broken. Absolutely. And uh, but you're going the church is gonna have to practice love and grace. You know, many times I know, and I've had to do it many, many times, practice love and grace with people. I've had deacons of mine that were drunk driving. They they got their license pulled. You know, I restored that, you know, the person who was very repentant about it, and I let I let him continue as a deacon. I treated him in grace, you know, but then when it comes to pastors, we want to, you know, a lot of a lot of churches just want to cut that guy out. A lot of guys, you know, they have uh, families, and you're throwing these guys out on the street. And here's the other thing, you know, as you're a pastor, you know, it's not, we don't pay into unemployment, you know, we don't pay into unemployment. We get, when we get axed, we're out on the street, you know, we can't collect. <laughs> you know, some people just have clueless about what's going on, what goes on. And yet we treat pastors like that with families. And, uh, you know, no wonder guys are quitting the ministry like crazy? A lot of them are not being paid enough to make a living, you know, and then, and then they uh, they're being mistreated and they're being disrespected, and uh, you know, no wonder the no the wonder they're leaving the ministry in droves. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, uh, but uh, in some cases they have no choice really. Now let's continue on First Timothy five, twenty one. In my translation, it says, in verse twenty one, in my translation, I myself solemnly charge, in the presence of God the Father as well as Christ who is Jesus, and in addition. The elect angels that you carry out to me, Timothy, these things, the commands in verses 19 and 20, without prejudging. And then he says, continue making it your habit of doing absolutely nothing on the basis of partiality. So that refers to any, that particular command or prohibition refers to any action in relation to the commands in verses 19 and 20 that would be the result of partiality. It denotes giving preferential treatment to a person or persons. So we can see that uh, Paul wants church discipline to be carried out with impartiality, no prejudging, listen to the evidence and the witnesses. And if uh, there's no evidence and no witnesses, you drop the charges. And uh, we shouldn't, uh, you know, just be hearsay doesn't, is, is hearsay or he said, she said kind of stuff that's going on that's even found in, in America today in courts. they should be throwing that stuff out and you, you, somebody can make an accusation against somebody in this country and, uh, and the media does all the time, but where are the evidence and the witnesses? And many times, there's none. It's just somebody has an ax to grind and, you know, people, you know, they're, they're, they're entertainers, athletes that are extorted for money. People make an accusation against them of some kind of misconduct, sexual misconduct, and they're, they're being run out of their jobs uh, when they're, they're innocent. Because people, you know, people are extort, trying to extort money from them. Give me some money to pay you off to shut me up. You know, hush money. And even though the person's innocent, they, they're already the bad press is causing them to get a bad reputation, which they don't want. You see this with politicians and entertainers all the time. And because people don't really, they, people, unless they're in the in the pub, in, pub, in the public uh, eye, you know, entertainers. Uh, politicians uh, people or have a leadership position in the public eye like a pastor or whatnot they know what I'm talking about uh, there's people will you people the, the people in the uh, that are not in these kind of positions don't realize how evil a lot of people really are <laughs> you would be shocked how people really are and and and, the, and how evil they can be and they'll they don't care who they hurt they feel you know you know when it comes to pastors, not only, you know, false accusations hurt, the, you know, because some people believe everything that they hear. They believe everything that's on television. They believe everything that somebody says. So all you have to do is say, make an accusi- accusation against the pastor and the devil and the angel, fallen angels. They use that just to try to make you think evil about the pastor. And I always say, if there's no evidence, well, you can make those accusations. Give me the evidence and the witnesses. If you have none, shut up. Oh, just just walk away from those people and don't even don't don't even talk to them. I, they, people like that are everywhere, and yeah, you so the not so the, the people are hurt. The guy's family can be hurt. You know, his wife and children. It's uh, it, it's it's unbelievable. You know, people don't realize the damage that can be done. Not to mention the people in the congregation who are hearing these things and are too immature to to reject these things without the evidence and the witnesses. And so they believe it anyways, but in their mind, because they don't are not grounded in truth, and, and they and the the devil just attacks these people, and then they leave the church because they have some doubt now in their mind about the pastor. Can I, you know, can I trust what this guy's saying? See how, how the devil is, you know, he's always remember the devil is the great slanderer. He's the first one to slander. He slandered the character of God. Two one third of the angels went with the devil. That's how good he was at convincing. Uh, uh, people, he got one third of the angels that go against God. Imagine that. So that's the, so we're in a very litigious society here in America. It's infected the church. We need to follow the biblical guidelines. You go in church discipline, if, whatever in relation to the pastor, you go to the pastor, one on one in gentleness and confront them. And it's not some you know, it's a a lifestyle, a habitual thing that's going on in the man's life. You keep it private. You don't tell anybody else. You go private, just you and him. And then if he doesn't acknowledge that, he doesn't hold to that, you must bring evidence and witnesses. If you have none, it's over. Let God deal with him if he's guilty. But if you have no evidence and witnesses, you, what are you doing? You got to stop. But if you do have them and he doesn't, he doesn't repent then, uh, then you take it to the whole church. And then if he doesn't repent then, then he must be removed until he does repent. And if he and in any of these three stages that he repents and, and he should be restored to his position. And the church and the congregation, like Paul said to the Corinthians about that man who had an incestuous relationship, you should you're to welcome him with open arms and love and not kick him to the curb. Okay? Because we don't want we want to we want everybody in the congregation wants to be treated with love and grace and get a second chance. Don't, 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 don't repent and pastors have the second have a right to have a second chance. And I, I see a lot of churches, again, as they pointed out, reading stuff and talking to people, they don't get second chances in a lot of churches. No grace. So as we wrap up this study about divine discipline in relation to the pastor, we can see that the scriptures clearly teach that church discipline must and should be administered by the church with regards to certain individuals in the church who are hurting not only themselves through their habitual sinful conduct, but also hurting the testimony of the church and the community. We also have seen that the Bible tells us who we are to discipline, And it also instructs us as to why we are to discipline. The Word of God also presents how we are to discipline. And lastly, it also presents to us the procedure that the church must follow. We have seen that both the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles taught the church to administer church discipline. Paul gives us several examples in his epistles in which he ordered discipline to be administered to certain apostate believers in the church. We've seen this in 1 Timothy. He severely rebuked, as I pointed out, the Corinthian church and 1 Corinthians chapter five for not practicing church discipline when it should have been. He called them arrogant. Therefore, the church today would do well to listen to the voice of the spirit and the word of God when it comes to the subject of church, church discipline and in our study, in relation to our study, church discipline and the pastor. The consequences, people, of the church not doing these things will be terribly devastating. We've already seen the effects of it in the church in America and in, 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 uh, in, in Western Europe. First, it injures the life and vitality and testimony of the church if we don't practice it. Secondly, it of course hurts those believers who are habitually living according to the lusts of their sin nature and being deceived by the devil. And then lastly, it's a sin against God people and a failure to respect his holy character if we don't practice church discipline. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson would be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.